Hey, what's up, Commute listeners? Dave here. And look, what can I say? We are blown away with the support we've received through our first 32 episodes. We absolutely love making this show, and we're so pumped that so many of you, more and more every single week, enjoy listening to it. We're taking a week off from the show, but we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. In the meantime, and especially if you're new to Commute, here's one of our favorite episodes from the Commute Archive. Episode 7, the famous Windows XP wallpaper, Can I Buy a Superhero? And the Great Beanie Baby Bubble. You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. Another week, another commute, another podcast episode. Hello, I'm Dave Traub. And I'm Jay Sisson. And over the next 15 minutes, our mission is very simple. Life, time, all of it. It's far too precious to waste. Hence, commute the podcast. Welcome into our audio experience where we travel with you on your way to work, on your way to do whatever it is that you do in your life. We don't want you to waste that time in the car. Hey, I tell you what, we'd also love to have you rate, subscribe, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. It really helps us out tremendously. We appreciate it in advance. On this week's episode, the iconic Windows XP landscape photo. You know someone took that, right? Can you buy a superhero? And admit it or not, but at some point you were obsessed with Beanie Babies. We'll discuss. All of that on this week's episode of Commute. Let's get to it. Dave, what is your earliest memory with the iconic operating system Windows XP? You know, really from an early age, I am of the instant messenger era. And so when I think of Windows XP, I think of myself, junior high, messaging girls on AIM, AOL, ICQ, you name it. Whatever instant messenger platform, that's what the computer was to me. Well, Windows XP was created in 2001, and it ended in 2014, which is a really long time for a single operating system to exist. And uh, during that time, it was in schools, it was in businesses. You know, I know for me, uh, I graduated high school in 2007, so that's right in the middle of that. I remember my middle school years and high school years always booting up those computers in the computer lab. It was always Windows XP. And then you'd come home, and the desktop was always Windows XP. And do you remember when you booted up Windows XP and you got to the desktop, do you remember what you saw? It was a mountain range, grassy hill, maybe. Yeah, I think everybody can picture it right now as I'm talking about it. It's this kind of grassy plain that goes up and it stretches up on the right side of the screen. And then there's these white clouds against a really blue sky. I started getting to thinking about, like, where did that photo come from? Uh, and if it wasn't even a photo at all, if it was created or if it was a, a stock photo or, or what, where, where did this image come from? And it actually has a really cool story. The photo was taken by a guy named Charles O'Rear, who is today 79 years old. And he took that photo in California in a place called Bliss Hill. It's off Highway 12 in Sonoma, California. You can actually punch in the coordinates and find this iconic hill today. 
day. But he took the photo not commissioned by Microsoft. He took it because he saw something that he thought was beautiful and he wanted to capture it. He would drive down the highway every Friday afternoon to visit his girlfriend in the mid-90s. Her name is Daphne Larkin. Today they're married. And he would pull over and just kind of check out the landscape every once in a while as a photographer. He worked for the Kansas City Star. He worked for the LA Times. And he photographed for National Geographic for 25 years. So this was a guy that always had a camera in in hand and was always looking for opportunities to take pictures. So in about the mid-90s, he's not really 100% sure when he took the photo. But in the mid-90s, he pulled over and he took that iconic photo that we all know So how did it get into their hands? Well, he uploaded that photo to a stock photo agency that he had helped co-found. Eventually, that agency was bought out by a company that used Microsoft uh, frequently, and Microsoft paid an undisclosed amount of money to use that photo. There is a rumor that it was in the low six figures, so, you know, a modest sum. Uh, But that photo was used not only as the background, but it was used in the promotional of Microsoft XP. It was a billion-dollar marketing campaign. So between 2001 and 2014, 400 million copies of Microsoft XP were sold. Uh, You can estimate, and people have estimated, that about a billion people at least have seen the iconic photo, most of us more than once. This may be the most viewed photo in human history. Is there a better way to start a first date? So you, you go on a date, you, you go up in your, your date's apartment, and you say, hey, can we get on your computer for a second? And you pull up their computer and you go, hey, you know this photo? I took it. So one of the reasons we were so interested in starting this podcast is because we love podcasts. And I heard this story on a podcast episode of one of my favorite podcasts, Plug Form, Planet Money from NPR. I know you. You're a Marvel fan. You're actually a pretty big Marvel fan, correct? Yeah. I mean, I grew up on that kind of stuff. I mean, I grew up reading comic books and... I try to see every movie uh, in the theater. It's just kind of like a fun uh, experience, I think. And Marvel is one of those rare things that has extreme broad appeal. So let's start here. The Disney company owns Marvel Comics. So once again, when we think Marvel, we're thinking Iron Man, Captain America, etc. You know, the Avengers. Well, a few years ago, the CEO of the Disney company was quoted as saying they'll never run out of stories to tell. You know, the big blockbusters that fuel the Marvel empire seem to come out every single summer because they own, and I quote, 7,000 superhero characters. So obviously, this is the value of Marvel, unlimited possibilities using nearly unlimited characters. So with 7,000 characters, but only a few that have seemingly ever been used, the guys at Planet Money wondered, can we buy one of those unused, probably strange, minor characters? To start their journey, they contacted a guy named John Morris, because, you know, they had to understand, so what kind of characters are we talking about here? What kind of characters are we dealing with? John is a Marvel expert. He's written three books, and they are titled The League of Regrettable Superheroes, The Legion of Regrettable Supervillains, and The League of Regrettable Sidekicks. So basically, Jay, these books are catalogs of the strange, forgotten, and unknown Marvel characters. 
So with John Morris as the kind of expert that they are consulting with, the guys said, let's explore some of the characters that maybe we'd have a shot at buying from Marvel. Some of these characters that Marvel probably has no interest in ever using. A few of those would include B-Man, uses bees, the bouncer, not a bouncer at a bar, literally a guy who bounces high, <laughs> A handyman named the paper hanger that hangs wallpaper as his power, but ultimately <laughs> the incredible hero that they landed on, Jay, and I can't believe that this guy wasn't in the last Avengers movie, is an incredible superhero named the Doorman. I need to know more. Yes. Please now, tell me more. Now, the Doorman's power is that he can literally turn into a door. So if you find a building that doesn't have a door or you're trying to sneak into a building, he turns into said door and you then use him to enter the building. So can he enter the building himself through himself or does he have to find a door to use? That's a good question. And no one knows. So the guys at Planet Money then emailed Marvel to try to see if they could buy the doorman. Obviously, no response. They called Marvel. No response. They had their Twitter army harass Marvel. No response. They even went to the Marvel Studios to stand outside with a sign trying to rally support for a conversation. All they wanted, Jay, was a simple conversation with Marvel to see, can we purchase the doorman? Yeah, free doorman. Free the doorman, baby. They never heard from Marvel, and Jay, they probably never Will the conclusion to their story in the pursuit of purchasing the doorman from Marvel Comics is that Marvel, at this point in time, they are so popular, they will never sell you an unused hero because they may never know when they may want to use said unused hero. A great example of this is the movie Guardians of the Galaxy. So in Guardians of the Galaxy, there's a character called Groot. Groot is literally a tree that can only say his name. On his own, he seems extremely useless. You throw him into a movie like Guardians of the Galaxy, all of a sudden, he becomes lovable. So if Marvel at some point would have sold Groot, they would have missed out on the opportunity to partner him in as part of Guardians of the Galaxy. So just the idea of owning these guys is so valuable to Marvel that they're not interested in selling them. Yeah, and it makes sense because if you read the history of Marvel, they haven't really had um, a lot of success in their past when it comes to films, so much so that uh, several years ago, they sold off a lot of those heroes to other studios and other companies to be able to use in their films. Uh, now, now, today, obviously, they're a multi-billion dollar empire. But back then, they were struggling to stay alive. So they sold off film rights for Spider-Man and the Hulk and all these other characters. Well, today, it's messy because uh, Spider-Man is owned by Sony. So when they want to use him in Marvel Studios movies, there's this kind of these weird contracts that have to be made. Uh, and then the Hulk is owned by Universal Pictures. So you actually can't make a solo Hulk movie through Marvel Studios. You have to only put him in a movie with other people. You know, if the door man ever becomes one of their core heroes, they're going to be kicking themselves for selling them off to Planet Money. All right, Dave. So to wrap us up, we are going to talk about Beanie Babies, a topic that I know you have a lot of personal history with. So I'm going to give you the floor. Yeah. So my father is an entrepreneur 
uh, and his his small business has evolved through the years. So he currently is a coffee shop, inside climbing gym, putt-putt course, but he used to be a collectible business. At one point, he sold Beanie Babies, and Jay, Beanie Babies put food on the table. Yeah, would it be safe to say that uh, Beanie Babies helped create the Trob name? Yeah, I, I would. I would actually go that far to say that Beanie Babies are as much a part of the Trob family as I am. Well, a few years ago, you and I both read a book that we recommended to each other called The Great Beanie Baby Bubble, and we have never stopped talking about it. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's talk about how did, how did we get to the point where people were putting their life savings into Beanie Babies, and what can Beanie Babies tell us about human nature and speculative bubbles and the economy? So, Beanie Babies uh, were created by a guy named Ty Warner. If you remember the tags that the Beanie Babies used to have, the iconic T symbol that is named after him. A very humble person. Yeah, of course. So he worked for the Dakin Toy Company in the 70s and was a superstar for them. He was one of their best salesmen, but he became obsessed with the idea in 1986 that stuffed animals should not be stuffed with stuffing, but they should be stuffed with the little beans because it would make the animals more flexible and they could be more lifelike and you could pose them. First, he pitched it to, to Dakin. He was like, we need this. We need to do this. And they were like, no, you, you can't do this. Uh, so he started working on it on the side, which eventually got him fired. So he walked out the door and said, I'll show them. He created his own company, Tie Incorporated, to sell what we know as today of the Beanie Baby. Uh, the Beanie Baby. He was a master manipulator of supply and demand, which is what really made Beanie Baby so successful. And really, there's three things that he did that the book, The Great Beanie Baby Bubble, attributes to his massive success. Number one is he made all Beanie Babies $5, so they were very accessible to anyone. They were the original Little Caesars Hot and Ready. Yes, exactly right. Uh, the second thing he did is that they were extremely tight-lipped about their information, so their supply was just obsessed over. They would only send certain shipments of Beanie Babies to certain places, certain stores would get certain uh, characters, and then all of a sudden, certain places would be shorted, and so you could never find the entire Beanie Baby collection in one place, and that was intentional. And then the third and final thing that he did is that they would retire certain Beanie Babies. Now, meanwhile, he was making millions of them in overseas factories, but no one ever said anything about that. So they would retire these Beanie Babies to just further hype up the, the people who were collecting them, because as the supply went down, the demand would go up, people would go online, and they would resell them for three times, four times a hundred times, a thousand times their value, you started to see NBC Nightly News run stories about people uh, making millions, literally, on Beanie Babies. Uh, in 1997, Beanie Babies got its way into McDonald's and just was, I mean, you remember the, the Beanie Babies McDonald's craze, right? I mean, people went absolutely crazy. By 1998, Beanie Babies was a $1 billion a year industry. When my dad would get a shipment, he would have people line up to get them and they'd want every single one and he'd put them all in a bag. They'd come in sight unseen, pay him, take the entire bag. 
Yeah, and I'm going to read you just real rapid fire here. We're a 15 minute podcast, so I got to be fast. I'm going to read you five stories of people acting crazy over Beanie Babies, and these are just the headlines, okay? Number one, at a market in Connecticut, fanatical collectors trampled children to get their hands on the retired tie-dye Garcia bear. Number two, a 77-year-old Chicago man dubbed the Beanie Baby Bandit stole 1,200 of the toys and hoarded them in a storage locker. Number three, at the border, Beanie Baby smuggling rings ran rampant similar to drug rings, told the Seattle Times. Number four, a West Virginia man shot and killed a 63-year-old security guard over a dispute involving, quote, several hundred dollars worth of Beanie Babies. <laughs> and finally, the, this headline's the best one, quote, he didn't want the cash register. All he wanted was the Beanie Babies, said a Los Angeles store clerk who was robbed at gunpoint for 40 bears. At the end of the day, a $5 bag of beans, you look at it, and it can be worth a lot of money if someone's willing to give you a lot of money. But eventually, you look at it and you realize that it's just a $5 bag of beans. And so at that point, people started to panic sell, which is what always happens in a bubble. The sales dived by 90%. Uh, by the early 2000s, uh, most Beanie Babies were worth 1% of their original value. I know you're wondering, what is Ty Warner doing today, right? I was just going to ask you that. Yeah, Ty Warner, um, you know, he's mostly lived a quiet life since then. Aside from getting caught with $107 million in an offshore bank account a few years ago, uh, Ty Warner is now 73 years old and is living out uh, his remaining years with a net worth of uh, a comfortable $2.7 billion. And that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Commute. Don't forget, please rate, subscribe, and review the show.